You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 47. And as always, I hope everyone remains safe and healthy out there. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've gotten together uh, because I took another trip to Mexico and I'm just now back in the saddle when it comes to podcast episodes. This is my third Mexico trip this year, and I don't mean to brag, really. It's actually an easy place to get to these days compared to a lot of other countries. And, uh, you know, I kind of naively thought that a lot of travel would be returning to normal by now. And, of course, that's not the case. Uh, but anyway, I went down to Baja, California with a group of folks. And uh, we dipped all the way down to the northern portions of Baja Sur. And if I stitch a number of trips together, I can now claim to have traveled every inch of Mexico's Highway 1. Uh, so I feel like there should be a patch or merit badge for that. So uh, a couple thousand miles in a tiny Chevy Spark. And uh, here's a shout out to Jake Scott for being an excellent companion and driver in that tiny car's close quarters. Uh, uh, the car is, you know, basically one step above a clown car, and yet uh, it only held two clowns in all of their luggage. Oh, and I want to give a shout out to Mihai Georgie, a friend of the show and a member of the So Much Pingle Facebook group. And Jake and I crossed paths with Mihai on a dark desert highway, a uh, cool wind in our hair, near Phoenix on the last night of our Mexican adventure. And, uh, uh, Mihai shared a Western Diamondback with us, and uh, we shared a little Mojave rattlesnake with him, which is a kind of thing that herpers do when they cross paths in the middle of the night. It was good to meet you, Mihai, and I got to say, you've got the best license plate ever. Now, before I get to this week's guest, I want to thank all of the show's patrons who contribute to keep the show rolling. And uh, it goes without saying that I appreciate it, each and every one of you. And uh, it occurred to me recently that I've never read out all of the names in one fell swoop. And uh, I've heard that done on another podcast. And I decided that I'm going to do it here. And I'm only going to do it once every 47 epi episodes. Uh, so here we go. Justin Michaels, Jason Jones of Herp MX, Smet Logic, a.k.a. Rob Kreutzer, Ryan Borgman, Joshua Wallace, Jill Riles, Marty Whalen, Chris Smith, Dr. Emily Taylor, John Burris, Camille Shapansky, Brandon Kong, Isaac Chelman, Dr. James Van Dyke, fan, uh, Brandon Ballard, Mike Rochford, Joseph Thompson, Dr. Alex Crone, Matt Ratcliffe, Jeroen Spaybrook, Brian Hughes, Brandon Barassa, Josh Holbrook, my favorite co-author, James McGee, Michael Moffat. I'll take a deep breath and then continue with Andy O'Connor, Jake Scott, Deb Crone, Dwayne McDermott, John Sullivan, Josh Ems, Justin Eldon, Matt Cage, Patrick Connolly, Chris McMartin, Michael Cravens, Anna Ware, Tim Warfel, David Burkhart, Adam Cooner, Dr. Bill Peterman, Cynthia Samaki, Paul Eric Bachland, William Bone, Jeremiah Easter, Richard Laguerre, hi you squeaks, 
Tom Ellis, Jeremy Schumacher, Neil Jones, Alec Gordon. One more breath and we're in the home stretch with Martin Haberker, Daniel Dye, Clinton Hankey, Ross Maynard, Nick Scoble, Moses Michelson, Miles Masterson, and Ben Genter. Now that is quite a list, ladies and germs, and uh, some of the coolest people I know. So and thank you all. I really appreciate it. So now let's get to this week's guest. Now, I have a small backlog of recorded shows to get on the air, which uh, is a pretty good problem to have. And I, I don't always push them out in the order they're recorded because uh, some of them take a little more work to uh, to get ready than others for one reason or another. And uh, I had a very busy week after getting home. And uh, I so I pulled an easy one off the shelf. Uh, and, and it was a pleasure to record an episode with Mr. Andrew Dubois as he is quite a good speaker and conversationalist uh, and conservationist, if you will. And editing his portion of the show was uh, easy peasy. Microphone or not, I always enjoy talking to Andrew. Uh, he is a deep thinker. Um, and uh, well, let, me, let me just say that he thinks deeper about more things and for longer than I do, than I'm capable of. So I always come away from our conversations having learned something new or seeing something from a different perspective. And uh, and here's something else I appreciate about Mr. Dubois. Uh, on occasions where I've been in the field with him, someone will say, uh, hey, where's Andrew? And uh, he'll be back uh, maybe a quarter mile or so photographing tadpoles, or maybe he'll just be enjoying a frog or lizard that we've run across. So he also drinks deep, folks, and uh, that's a fine quality in a person. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Uh, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Dubois, who is a senior natural resources specialist for Jefferson County Open Space, and that's in the Denver area of Colorado. And uh, he's also, you know, really a field ecologist when you get down to it. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, and I also forgot to mention you're my friend, too. So it's uh, good to have you on the show. Good to be your friend. <laughs> likewise, likewise. And uh, you uh, you were kind enough to uh, talk with us a little bit at the very front end of the sh of the show when we were just I was just kicking the show off and and gathering interviews from people and you gave us a little origin story ep uh, episode and I appreciate that. Yeah, it was fun to to not only do that one but also to hear from some of my other friends and see some of the common themes that pulled us all into our interest in amphibians and reptiles. But I, I think the thing that was most exciting to me was the, the differences, um, the, the kind of unique steps on, on individual people's journeys into this shared community that we're all in. And uh, yeah, that was a heck of a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and before we move on to the, the those origin stories, things, uh, people really love them. They really like to hear even though sometimes the stories may be, you know, be a parallel to their own, uh, people just love hearing all the details, all the sordid little details of other people's lives. You know, it's kind of fun. Uh, get a good response from other people about them. Glad to hear it. So let's get over to, uh, you know, it's we chat a lot and uh, we've been on some trips together to some cool places. And uh, I've, you know, heard about your work as uh, over in, in those uh times. And, uh, you know, it's all very interesting to me. So I'm glad you came back on the show so you can kind of share what it is you're, you're up to. 
first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit? You know, just describe what you what you're doing there as a senior natural resources specialist or field ecologist, and why don't you describe a little bit about what the Jefferson County Open Space is and what you're what you're really doing there? Yeah, um, that sounds great. So um, Jefferson County Open Space is part of the Parks Department within Jefferson County, Colorado. Our agency is responsible for managing the more than 55,000 acres of open space parkland that we've been preserving since the 1970s. Um, my team within Jefferson County Open Space uh, is the Natural Resources team, and our job, more or less, is to um, study and track and manage the natural resource components of uh, that landscape. Um, and that's that's part of you know the broader mission to also provide recreational opportunities and nature-based experiences and um, all of those sorts of things for. Um, folks that live around here, as well as, as everybody that comes out visiting. So um, the natural resources team itself is divided um, between our inventory and monitoring functions, uh, which I think is is more in line with, with what you typically hear from uh, folks that have come on the show, where um, our angle is more, we're looking for generally rare or sensitive species specifically, but also just um, trying to document the biodiversity that occurs across our landscape um, and where we do run into rare occurrences or communities, things like that, we can attempt to do some population monitoring to see how things are doing over time. Um, the end result being to provide recommendations for land management. The other end of our team is our, I guess, more you know implementation um, side of things where that's where our foresters and our invasive um, species specialists are. And they do, um, I'd say, the brunt of the actual habitat management work that we do in, in clearing our forest stands and, and maintaining those, um, as well as trying to wage uh, as good a war they can against the ever-present threat of uh, noxious weeds. Um, so it's it's interesting. I, I on the INM side, am just one um, person on our wildlife team. Uh, we also have uh, small mammal specialists that and uh, uh, bird specialists, and all of us do more than our specialization. I mean, you might be able to guess from my presence on the show, but my emphasis is amphibians and reptiles, but we all wear a lot of hats. Um, I just was helping out with Pawnee Montane Skipper surveys earlier today before I chatted with you. And that's a, a, oh, cool. a butterfly that we have um, down at the south end of the county. And uh, yeah, the, the work keeps me busy. Um, we also, other than wildlife on the inventory and monitoring side, we do have a, a botany team um, that does all the same kinds of things for rare plants. So we're trying to to not just focus on on certain organisms, but take a more holistic approach to managing the landscape. Okay. Well, speaking of the landscape, can you pay me a picture, a little bit of what that is? You talked, you said you mm -hmm. mentioned 55,000 acres. Uh, and, and I hate to say parkland or, uh, or it, everything kind of gets lumped into the term park, but you, and of course, you know, the, the title of the organization is open space mm -hmm. has open space in it, which, so you're talking about uh, uh, state-owned uh, lands, or uh, who owns the lands, and what what can you characterize what the lands are? Yeah, so um, Jefferson County does own those lands. Um, okay. So it 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 is us, and 
Um, as far as, I guess, just a, a geographic idea or, or topographic idea for, for listeners, um, Jefferson County is at the interface of the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains. So uh, we occur in a, in a stretch um, along the Rockies known as the Front Range. And um, that makes the county interesting. On the eastern side, we, we have mostly, historically, it would have been um, grassland ecosystems that transition into foothills, um, sort of along the, the center line of the county, as well as hogbacks and mesas. And then eventually, as you, you get further up, you get into our more montane environments and uh, kind of upland pine forests things like that. So the, the county from north to south end, and it's a, it's a very tall, skinny county, especially skinny at the on the southern end in Pike National Forest. Um, the entire thing is, is kind of a, a transitional, you know, an ecotone of sorts, uh, where you have these two big um, regions colliding. And, and it, it creates a, a lot of interesting geology and um, sort of a, a collision spot for a lot of those grassland or plain species, as well as some of the uh, more montane uh, flora and fauna. So as far as the state of those lands, um, our our agency has a kind of an interesting assemblage of, of parks. Some of them are more what you would think of for a parks and recreation department. Um, thinking about, say, like our Crown Hill Park um, that's uh, out in Wheat Ridge on the east side of the county. It's more, you know, paved sidewalks and uh, people walking around the reservoir at its center. It's it's a little bit more, I guess, disturbed or, or urbanized, whereas as, especially as you move westward and you get away from the population density, we tend to get into spaces that are, are true wildland um, parks with, with a little less disturbance or um, less disturbance, at least in their, their history, even if people are visiting them more now. Um, some of those parcels are, uh, quite a few of them actually are former rangeland, um, a lot of cattle ranching historically in the region. But uh, yeah, a good mix of, I guess, more traditional parks and recreation style parks. And I'd say the, the majority being sort of um, uh, wildland open spaces which people can come out and hike through or uh you know they, they still use it for recreate recreation and probably hunting too right uh yeah so we we don't uh we only have hunting at one of our parks uh the centennial cone park but um recreation we do not uh sell park passes our parks are free um to anyone that that comes to them um limited mostly by parking space, depending on the park and the day of the week you pick, uh, you may wind up not having a place to put your vehicle. Um, we, we do, our parks are very popular, especially just because they're, they're very accessible, um, throughout the, the front range. We're kind of the, the most, the easiest access for a lot of folks that are looking for a place to go either, you know, right after work to go somewhere or for an easy weekend day hike somewhere or challenging, whatever. And, and we do offer a lot of different recreational opportunity. Um, I think, you know, people listening to the show being herpers, um, but you also have, um, you also have hiking, uh, trail running, mountain biking. We have equestrians. We have rock climbers. 
um, all sorts of folks um, that are out enjoying those open spaces. And we do have um, different regulations depending on the park. Some of them, um, we have directional use trails that, you know, on, on a certain day of the week, you can go there to mountain bike, but not to hike and vice versa. Um, so it's, it's a lot of trying to balance those recreational interests and that desire to engage in, in that kind of outdoor experience with um, trying to maintain a high quality of the, the um, biotic community that exists on that landscape. Ah, okay. Always the challenge, right? Because you have a, an expanding uh, community, the Denver metropolitan area, and uh, you, you have to make uh, the folks there, you know, number of folks using the parks is probably increasing. And so you have to balance that with uh, meeting the needs of the wildlife to make sure that the, the frogs and the lizards and the snakes are still there for people to enjoy that is very much the challenge um one of the the difficult things you know talking about the history of land use in the county is we don't have anything that you know you would consider a pristine background um or baseline for uh, when we started studying all of this stuff during the inception of of the organization um the landscape has always in some way been been altered by um, use by, by us, by human beings and, um, trying to figure out, you know, at at what threshold are we trying to maintain things and, um, what, what are the negative pressures and what, beyond that, just what negative pressures do we even have any control over? You know, there are some things that you can probably imagine straight away that are going to impact a lot of our natural resources, climate change, um, prolonged drought, et cetera, being something we probably can't really control much of, but other things like just anthropogenic disturbance, um, changes in vegetative communities due to disturbance from say like off trail use, um, impacts from just pet dogs, um, Uh whether on trail or off leash use, et cetera, um, all of those things and, and many more kind of, uh, you look at that picture as it is now and, and you imagine, you know, this is going to, to double. This impact is is going to probably double as, as our population explodes over the next 20 years. And um, how do we how do we sort of balance the the need of that population to have a relationship with the outdoors and, and be able to enjoy outdoor experiences while making sure that that the natural heritage piece is still there? Um, for them yeah. to enjoy and and for it to be a part of that landscape. And, and as you and I and many other people know, the interest in the natural world is is increasing as well with the population. Uh, there seems to be a lot of people who are very interested in, if not bird watching or herping, just getting outdoors and, like you say, mountain biking and things like that. So there's a, a broad spectrum of uh, heightened interest in in being outside. I think it's especially true too, Mike, in our area, because one of the, you know, our Colorado right now, a lot of our population growth is because there are people like myself who have moved here um, from other states. And I think one of the appeals that that Colorado has um, to folks that may be moving from the Midwest, for example, uh, where a lot of folks come from, is that there is so much open space that's been maintained and, and at least a a more natural setting than say, you know, a, a monocultured um, agricultural field. And, and it's like many parts of the Midwest and not that Colorado doesn't have um, 
a lot of, of agricultural use in its sections, but, you know, the area right around Denver, there is so much, uh, wilderness, you know, that, that I think that's a, a big part of the appeal for folks that are moving out here. The wide open spaces and all that. And exactly. so that, and that kind of drew you out there for the, for this particular position, right? Uh, did, did you not come out to Colorado for this this job you're working now? I, I didn't. Um, it oh, was okay. kind of a, a lucky accident that I stumbled in here. I was, um, the, the year before I started working in open space in 2016, I was at the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. And I was kind of in a rock and a hard place there because uh, the the job I had working for the state herpetologist there at the time, that was Sarah Beth Clee Mundy. Um, I was a naturalist aide for the state. And I was also working for um, a nature center out there, um, the Wesselman Woods Nature Center. I think now they, they just go by Wesselman Nature Preserver. Uh, I don't know. I haven't kept up. A lot of my friends have, have since left, but um, but I, I loved both of those jobs, um, working for Indiana DNR as well as working at that nature center. But um, there was not really much of a a way for me to sustain myself in those positions long term. Um, each of them was seasonal. Um, you know, I was making ten dollars an hour, and um, I wasn't. You know, go, the the offer was on the table to return the following year, but um, my job duties would have been largely similar, and um, I don't think there was really any path to advancement. So, at the time, I I kind of moved to Colorado because why not? Um, yeah. And fortunately, uh, my, the director of the nature center, I was at the time, uh, John Scott Foster had worked at the Indianapolis zoo with one Joseph Ehrenberger, um, friend of the show, friend of the show. And when I told my boss, I was moving out to Colorado. He introduced me to Joe. Um, Joe met me and then introduced me to Co Park, um, Colorado Partners in Amphibian Reptile Conservation. And you have on the show already had uh, Tim Warfel and and Hunter Johnson uh, from Colorado Parks, uh, <clears throat> Colorado Partners in Amphibian Reptile Conservation. Um, that community was how I I kind of landed in Colorado. So I, I kind of got a leg up um, just having known uh, John and then then Joe by extension. But um, I'd been out here for a few months, um, I think five months, actually, before I, I was just applying around to different natural resource management positions. It wasn't having a ton of luck. It was during the winter. Um, and then Jefferson County was advertising a, a nature center educator uh, position at their Lookout Mountain Nature Center. And I thought, what the heck? You know, that's something to do for a season until I get into more of a, a wildlife management job. And, uh, well... Uh, my position there kind of morphed into exactly what I, I wanted to do. I see. And, and of course, this all, this all ties in with your education. You know, you went to school mm-hmm. uh, for a degree in wildlife biology, correct? I, I did not. Um, oh. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of didn't do a lot of the things that I would probably advise other people who were, who were going to follow a, a similar path to myself. Um, I was bent, I think like a lot of people who, um, you know, I, I think I was steered in the direction, oh, you like biology, you like nature, et cetera, but that's not very practical. So what do you do? You, you go in, into the, the medical field, that's biology. And so I, I had moved into my undergraduate career um, on a pre-med track and I, I quickly learned um, in an independent research 
post my first summer out there with my um, advisor at the time. Uh, his name's Steve Johnston, and he's a specialized. He's a cell biologist, but he specializes in in yeast. And uh, I did a summer working for him, and I, I think that just completely um, uh, faded any any ambition I had of of working in a hospital um, into the background because I was just so excited about this idea of of answering questions and, and learning more about biology itself and. Um, so that kind of got me on the research track. And then uh, a few years later, we hired uh, a new evolutionary ecologist um, who's also an amphibian ecologist named Greg Ruthig. And uh, I mean, that was that was the end of it. They hired a frog biologist and I, I changed over to him as an advisor and used disease ecology work to transition from my, you know, mostly medically geared education into you know, how can I get as close as I can at the end of my undergrad career to, to field ecology? And it was diseases of, of amphibians um, and pathogens and, and parasites of amphibians, or I guess in the case of oomycetes, even predators uh, of amphibians. And that was kind of my bridge into field ecology. Um, so biology grabbed you by the face and turned your head. It did. Yeah, absolutely. Another direction. Okay. Uh, and, and so here you are uh, pursuing something out in the wide open spaces of Colorado and you get into the Nature Center uh, job, which sort of morphs into this uh, field ecology role. Yeah, it was um, kind of a, a, a creep of job duties over time. I had started out doing, um, you know, a lot of the programs that had already been written, I was just kind of coming on and, and doing some, some teaching, mostly for school programs. We did some public education stuff there too. And, you know, the, a wide, a wide array of, of topics, uh, astronomy, wildlife, fire ecology, anything that would have, have been in, of, of some interest to the community was, was definitely a, a topic of interest. Um, but I kept busy um, both with Co-Park as well as through um, some consulting work, um, kind of keeping my toe in biology. And I lucked out that they were looking for some folks to, to take on some of their citizen science programs um, for the following year. And that was when I, I was able to add the Frog Watch USA program um, that had been run through the Jefferson County Open Space Chapter for a few years prior to my taking it on, um, I took that on the following year and, and started doing some um, amphibian and reptile inventory work um, while I was still seasonal. But as, as time went on, that became a larger and larger portion of the position until I, I pretty much just do that all the time now. Um, so that's the, the INM work is there. I, I still do. There still is a, a pretty significant um, public interface um, component to my job. I am expected to continue to seek out opportunities to communicate about the work that Jefferson County Open Space is doing to manage natural resources, to answer questions um, that our community might have about their their natural resources, and of course my my expertise being wildlife and and more specifically to herptofauna and one of our most common, um, at least encountered uh, through through a lot of our park system, one of our most encountered herps is prairie rattlesnake, um, and it's our our only dangerously venomous snake that occurs in in Jefferson County. But um, a, as tends to be the case with rattlesnakes, there's a lot of 
of mystery and apprehensiveness um, surrounding them. But um, I get more questions about prairie rattlesnakes than I do anything else. And so that, that still is a, a pretty big part of, of me talking to, to the community is, is about um, prairie rattlesnakes. That seems to be a common theme anymore. With No matter who I talk to, people involved in uh, wild, biology, wildlife ecology, that sort of thing, uh, you're, you're not, you're not a hermit in a hut on the side of the mountain. You, you, you've got to be able to talk to people and you've got to be able to interact with the general public. That's, that's, those are, you know, other duties as a sign, but they're, it's an important, uh, component and, uh, you know, a well-spoken chap like yourself, you shouldn't have any, any problem with that. And my, my guess is you probably enjoy talking to folks about this stuff. I do. Um, I, I find, I guess my other interest beyond wildlife, wildlife itself, um, I do enjoy people. Um, I enjoy learning about why they behave the way they do, why they think the way they do, what, what about their, their background, uh, makes them think a certain way or where, where did they get a certain idea? Um, I think all of those things are, are exciting to me. And so, um, I also just enjoy talking about things that I'm, I'm passionate about. And I think my, my biggest gift in this field over time has just been a, an enthusiasm that has largely not waned, um, just for the, the material itself, um, for natural history and, and wildlife and the biological sciences. And so I do, um, I find it energizing and exciting to, to get to talk to people about this kind of stuff. So let's talk about, um, just dirt a little bit different. So you, I know you do some work with frog amphibians mm-hmm. in, uh, in your, your position. So let's talk about some of the work you do uh, when it comes to amphibians. Sure. Um, so in Jefferson County, we have not, not as many amphibians as, as some of the other folks that come on the show, but we do have, um, um, Northern leopard frogs, American bullfrogs, boreal chorus frogs, um, Rocky mountain slash Woodhouse's toad, um, great plains toads and plains spadefoots are right next to us, but have not been documented within our land ownership. And then of course, uh, we do have tiger salamanders, and we're kind of at a, an integrated zone between Arizona tiger salamanders and barred tiger salamanders at the subspecies level. But they're all, you know, they're all tigers um, out right. here. So, um, as far as um, what I've been doing with amphibians out here, the northern leopard frog has been probably the focal species um, for me, at least since 2017. Um, they are a tier one species of greatest conservation need on the Colorado State Wildlife Action Plan, um, which is a, a state wildlife action plan for, for anybody that, that uh, in the audience here that's wondering is uh, a document that, that each state either has or is developing or constantly updating that more or less um, is, is supposed to provide a summary of of all of those biological elements that occur within the boundaries of the state and um, anything that is is of concern or needs additional work. The threshold for that being that it's perhaps rare or the population trend has been negative, or in some cases, there's just a, a dearth of knowledge um, about that taxon and, and more is, is needed 
to, to be known about them before, you know, any, any management decisions or, or corrective action can be taken. So um, Northern leopard frogs being at a tier one means that they're a, a fairly high priority um, species of conservation need, and they are a species of concern within the state of Colorado. And this is mirroring, um, or not, not even mirroring, but I, I guess just a part of a larger trend um, the species has been experiencing throughout its its western range. Uh, northern leopard frogs have a, a pretty massive range, global range, as well as just the, the variety of, of habitats that they use, um, throughout their, their distribution. Um, but they're, they're all the way, you know, up into Canada, south into Virginia, Nebraska, New Mexico. They even make it into Arizona, um, the Atlantic coast. They're in parts of British Columbia. Um, I mean, these, this is a, a very versatile, um, species that has, uh, I guess, a a life, a life history strategy that, that works well in a variety of environments. And that's what makes it kind of alarming that, you know, once you reach the Western end of the Great Plains, all the way to the Pacific coast, um, since the 1970s, Northern leopard frogs have been precipitously declining, um, not just their numbers, but in many cases being extirpated from parts of their, their natural range. So, um, we do have them present in Jefferson County and, and, one of the things I've been trying to do is get a handle on how many how many populations do we have um, that still exist? How many did we used to have? How much of a decline has there been? And then beyond that, um, trying to understand what might be driving declines or what might be supporting um, the continued persistence of those those extant populations. So one of the you know let you rattled off that your list of frogs or frogs and toads and one of the ones you listed was the bullfrog which is not a native mm-hmm. it's an introduced species to where you're at and i i think you it's safe for me to say that the bullfrog is a, a one of the con- contributing factors to the decline of the leopard frog in your area yes um i'd say it, it's definitely one of one of many um i think something that that comes up often when talking about declining species is there's there tends to be this um perception that can it can be adopted that they're they're very delicate or um or you know just just somebody breathing on them the wrong way is going to kill them and i'd like to emphasize that the northern leopard frogs are very tough um and versatile animals and it's it's not just any one factor but multiple um, but yeah, the, the invasion of the American bullfrog is, is certainly one of the factors that's contributing. It, it isn't the only one because the eastern, a uh, significant portion of the eastern part of, of the northern leopard frogs range, they share with American bullfrogs naturally and right. coexist. But um, some of the, the other factors that are affecting the western populations are, are not as big of a deal um, back east. But I, I guess to summarize the problems that you can run into when you're dealing with American bullfrogs as they relate to Northern leopard frogs is um, for one, it is another ronid frog, uh, another large bodied ronid frog, but larger still than the leopard frog. So it competes directly um, for territory and food resources, specifically around aquatic habitats. Northern leopard frogs are a little more versatile when it comes to uplands. 
Um, they spend a, a good portion of their season out here foraging in, in wet meadows and grasslands. And you rarely see, except during pretty significant precipitation events, you rarely see bullfrogs in terrestrial environments unless they're on the move somewhere. Um, but bullfrogs have a, an important advantage over northern leopard frogs when it comes to those aquatic environments. And it's uh, having tadpoles that are, are not palatable to uh, predatory fish species. Um, many, in many cases, uh, fish species that are stocked for recreational fishing opportunities. Um, so unfortunately the, um, the bullfrog as a larva enjoys a, a kind of immunity to predation or, or reduced predation from predatory fishes that the leopard frog does not have. Um, so we have, unfortunately, uh, for the leopard frog, there are many, uh, water bodies in Colorado where we have introduced game fishes. Um, they provide, they, they pretty much exclude leopard frogs in any water body where there isn't some kind of vegetated shallow where they can seek shelter from the larger fish that might be eating their eggs or their tadpoles, but the bullfrogs can fully exploit those reservoirs. Um, so yeah. that's, that's one problem. Um, another is direct predation of leopard frogs by bullfrogs. Um, Mike Lanou um, in Iowa found that uh, American bullfrogs could consume as many as two northern leopard frogs a day um, when he was checking their their gut contents, um, which is is pretty remarkable. So you have that component as well. There's competition, there's, there's direct predation, and then there's um, the possibility of bullfrogs being a disease vector for ronavirus okay. or the amphibian chytrid fungus. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why, why having bullfrogs in the area are, is a problem for leopard frogs. Um, certainly. So you're, you're in the process of understanding where they is and where they ain't, so to speak, uh, in terms of leopard frogs and, mm-hmm. uh, where they were historically and things like that. And, uh, um, maybe uh, identifying some of these issues. It sounds like the problems, you know, it's not just bullfrogs or other things going on, like fires and droughts and climate change and, and uh, you know, who knows what, well, death of a thousand cuts kind of a scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of what you're doing. And your, your goal, though, is to maintain that species in Jefferson County and, and hopefully keep it, keep it thriving in places. Absolutely. Um, that is, that is the goal, um, to, to at least maintain the existing populations of leopard frogs where, where it is possible. Um, and, and I guess that is one of the, the challenges is, um, not just thinking about the present, maintaining them in the present, but looking ahead to those pressures we can anticipate, um, pressures of additional development, uh, additional fragmentation, uh, additional visitation, um, even more severe drought um, and climate. You know what what populations maybe can be preserved over time. What ones are in trouble? What ones are doing okay? Which ones are in trouble but there's not much we can do? Um, is a lot of the the balancing act. Um, and I, I guess that's where leopard frogs provide a, a little bit of an additional challenge over some other herptofauna. Um, in Colorado, northern leopard frogs require generally three different habitats uh, within a single year in order to make it uh, through their, their annual cycle. They require a, an overwintering water body that does not freeze to the bottom um, because they do spend their winters out here underwater 
in cold, highly oxygenated water where they do all of their, um, they fulfill all their oxygen needs just by um, absorbing oxygen directly from the water through their skin. And their metabolic needs are so low uh, at those temperatures that, that that suits them just fine. Um, but generally, because of the the bullfrogs, invasive fish, uh, fishes, or or just you know even some of the native fishes like trout, etc., um, oftentimes the the waters where they overwinter will not work as breeding wetlands. So a leopard frog's first job in the spring is usually to leave its overwintering pond to find a breeding wetland. And there are some exceptions where the breeding wetland and the overwintering wetland are the same, but um, and for our populations, most uh, appear to be uh, separate. And so they are going to usually move out to an ephemeral water body that has a long enough hydro period that, that can support them to metamorphosis, but will generally dry um, in the fall so as to exclude predatory fishes or, or bullfrogs. Beyond that, uh, they also require usually grassland habitats for their foraging environments. And those, those environments need to be within a certain proximity um, of one another for, for leopard frogs to do everything that they need to do in a given year. Um, the good news is that leopard frogs are um, they're pretty capable of moving around. They're, they're great at commuting, um, for a, for a relatively tiny frog. Um, so it's, it's not unusual for leopard frogs to disperse long distance overland. Um, there are cases where they've moved close to 10 miles in a straight line over, over a few years, uh, in the case of some, you're, you're seeing a move over, say, like a kilometer, um, crossing political boundaries, county lines, etc. cetera. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be through completely connected habitat. Sometimes it, it appears like they move along even just vegetated ditches along sides of roads. But you can imagine that fragmentation for this species is um, perhaps even more damaging than for some others that you can think of that may only need, you know, one or two habitat types. Right. Um, and that is, that is one thing, um, while my, while the, the organization's acreage is, is extensive, um, that 55,000 acres is not completely connected. Um, it is, it is broken up into, um, over 30 land parcels. And while we've certainly been trying to strategically acquire land or work easements where we, we maintain movement corridors for wildlife species, it can still be challenging for a lot of these animals to move between those habitat types. And this is where there's kind of a, a problem and a, and a unique and, and kind of cool opportunity in dealing with leopard frogs, where you may have one landowner that has a particular required habitat type for leopard frogs and another neighbor has a, a different one. Um, and so the, the leopard frog doesn't care who's, you know, who owns what property they need to, to cross these fence lines in order to, to make it, make the magic happen, um, throughout the year. And, and it creates this, this need, if you're going to successfully manage the species, especially in a, a fragmented landscape of, of, you know, little postage stamps of ownership for landowners to get together and, and communicate about the species, and what is the plan at a, a landscape or regional level? 
And I'm, I'm happy to say that in Colorado, we, for the last few years, um, have, I, I guess since 2018, um, there's been a, a Colorado leopard frog working group um, that's emerged that coordinates um, leopard frog conservation work and communicates successes, challenges, opportunities between agencies. Um, and that has largely been through the leadership of actually Joe, Joe Ehrenberger of uh, Adaptation Environmental Services and Kelly Treese. Um, both of them have, have done a heck of a lot of work and getting all of these different agency partners on board. Jefferson County is just one of them. Um, we have Boulder County Parks and Open Space, um, City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks, and uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife um, are all represented as well as various other um, local agencies that are all land managers here in the Front Range. So um, I think it was uh, Jim Rohrabau put it um, in Mike Lanou's Amphibian Declines book that if you were going to succeed in conserving leopard frogs in the West, you would need to take that landscape or region level approach. And I'm, I'm proud to say that um, the leopard frog conservationists out here in Colorado are, are trying to do just that. Well, um, let me interject that uh, I had, you know, I'm thinking of, as, we're, as you're talking, I have further questions, but then you keep answering the questions I haven't even asked yet. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to get a drink. I'll let you keep talking and uh, I'll come back <laughs> in about uh, 45 minutes. Uh, no, uh, so that I was, you know, really curious about uh, uh, not only who else is uh, involved with this, because obviously it's not uh, Apex Andrew uh, fighting for the frogs by himself. Uh, there's lots of other people involved in that. And, and so you have all these people involved that are concerned for the welfare of leopard frogs in Colorado in general. Uh, but what about the, how do you communicate the, this need to the public? Because, you know, most people think of a leopard frog, it's a frog, it's at a pond. And, and, you know, even myself, my much younger self was amazed to find leopard frogs in upland meadows and things far away from water. And, uh, that's probably uh, not the public perception of them. So what, what gets done to help educate the public about this issue? Sure. Um, so certainly our, our agency has made um, some efforts to communicate uh, wildlife natural history information through um, electronic newsletters, through social media posts. Um, we've uh, other agencies like Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks have um, put out interpretive signage um, talking about the northern leopard frog and some of its natural history components and, and specifically why they were doing certain activities, namely out there moving heavy equipment out across the grassland in order to do some vegetation management around some of their ponds. Um, people were, were wondering whether they're tearing up the landscape and, well, it's to benefit this frog. Um I think that there is a challenge in trying to engage people in frog conservation that I, I'm somewhat surprised by. I guess I was, you know, raised raised in the rural Midwest um, where you know the only good snake is a dead snake. I, I always kind of thought, you know, frogs are are a popular animal 
people like them. They, they think they're charismatic. They think they're cute. Um, most, most folks, if you asked them point blank, you know, how do you feel about frogs or they, I, I would have assumed they, they felt warm about them. Whereas snakes, it was almost ubiquitously some kind of fear or disgust. And I've, I've sort of changed my view a little bit on this, just working in, in the interpretive education, uh, space for the last, you know, seven years. Um, the, the terror or disgust that snakes inspire can be a, a really valuable tool in starting a conversation with people because I, I don't find that there are many people that are, have neutral feelings about snakes. Um, they're True. either afraid of them or disgusted by them, hate them, or they may love them, admire them, find them fascinating. I don't see, a, you know, I, it's it's not hard for me to put a, an opportunity to discuss snakes out there and, and fill a talk about snakes. I, I have not had the same kind of success uh, talking about amphibians. And I think, you know, it, it, it's something where maybe we don't need to um, talk so much about the specifics if there's just a general buy-in that natural resource managers are following the best available science, the best available recommendations in, in managing natural resources. Because I, I do think we get into dangerous territory if we need to to try to, to educate the public about every species that's imperiled. Um, you know, that's, that's quite a bit of information to need to know on top of, you know, doing your job and on top of having other responsibilities like doing your taxes and registering your car and going to the doctor and taking care of your family and whatever hobbies you have. Not everybody is as excited about frogs as, as you and I are, or not everybody is, is going to be a naturalist. So how do you, how do you reach that, that audience that you're not going to convert into, into the next, you know, miniature David Attenborough? How can you, how can you get those folks to care um, yeah. about natural resources management. I, I guess that's one area that I've been really impressed with Coloradans as a group, um, specifically in our areas that I, I feel that, um, we have received a lot of support, um, from our community in, in trying to manage natural resources for the benefit of, of wildlife populations. It's a, it's popular, as as we've polled people and uh i think that buy-in is is probably more important than than trying to reach individual people about leopard frogs specifically gotcha well i i you know there's like you say there's and it's really hard to believe that not everybody is uh on board like we are but uh, uh there you go but also every day there's uh there's the bad news fatigue uh, factor, right? You, you can only hear about so many imperiled animals before it all becomes, it makes you want to run away and hide. But perhaps, you know, concepts like keeping common species common, being able to share victories, you know, like, hey, you know what, we've got, we still got big populations of leopard frogs in these places. And, uh, uh, for you know, hey, Colorado, come come check out some leopard frogs. So maybe, maybe, uh, victories can be more or just as much important as as important as you know hanging uh these these stories of uh, frogs in trouble or any whatever animal in trouble uh it, it it just gets to be such a such a downer all the time you know i mean even for us i mean we get we get we get a lot of fatigue over all these terrible stories we hear 
I think a lot of the challenge is, you know, what is the purpose of communicating about this species? You know, what is your goal in trying to tell people this bad news that you're hearing? Because if they don't have any agency to change their behavior or make some kind of choice in their own life or with their own power um, to, to change the circumstances of the frog, then you've, you've more or less depressed someone. I mean, you've taught them something and maybe they'll be glad of that and maybe they'll, they'll go off to school and, and become a, a wildlife biologist or something. But I, I think more likely, you know, um, the, I, I like the idea of if you're going to talk to somebody about a problem, um, tell them how they can help, you know, you, you spend the time talking about why is this important? Why do I need to have frogs around? What is their their service to the ecosystem? Uh, what is their their role in the state's natural heritage? And say you bring them up to speed on that, you get them bought in. Well, now what? Um, and that's that's one area where I think that 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 specific education and talking about natural history and and talking about ecological roles um, can be very valuable because you can wind up with um, with a subset of your audience kind of moving up there toward toward actualization where not only are they they taking in information learning about it but they may become a an ambassador a conservation ambassador where they they start educating themselves maybe by listening to shows like yours by reading by getting involved with their audubon society or or other, you know, native plant society, some kind of naturalist organization, and maybe they they are talking to their friends or their family about these issues, and and that's great. And then beyond that, what if they they become a, a citizen scientist or a, a community scientist, if you if you prefer community science as the term, um, where they're volunteering their their time and resources and and using that education to. Um, to make a contribution to, to knowledge or, you know, beyond that, of course, to donate to not-for-profits or, or causes that preserve land and, and go to conserve species. Um, you've right. had organizations that, that benefit from that, that sort of steward um, represented on the show so far. So I, I think there is, there's definitely value in, in doing that, that sort of education, because you will win people over. I guess my, I, I do think there one of the errors in judgment that is occasionally made in all this is is that the goal should be to get everyone at that level, and I don't know that that's that's necessary or even a realistic goal. I think it's more how can you know everyone who's who's on their soapbox about their favorite species that's declining how instead of making people remember a bunch of special specialized or very specific information about those individual taxa. Instead, how can we get people to see the big picture? Things are in trouble. Here are the pressures. Here's what we can do. Here are the changes we need to make. Um, I think that's the challenge for most of it. Well, I, I think I can't help but think about Frog Watch, which you've been involved with. And, uh, mm -hmm. of course, uh, not too long ago, I had Gina's wiki on, and she does Frog Watch in... Uh, the New Orleans area, and uh, we actually got to go down there and, and do a, a frog watch thing with her. And so uh, I think about things like that where people get buy-in through experiences. It's like, you know, Autobahn has, owl, you know, owl, uh, what do you call it, where they go out and listen for or listen for and look for owls on certain nights and things like that. So there's these experiences available where People think they're, you know, maybe they're providing some new and novel thing for their kids, but uh, at the end of it, they're uh, 
they're in, you know, they're, they become Audubon members or they help out with frog watch or they never drive by their local pond and look at it the same. So, uh, that's kind of come for something, right? Rather it than does. simply the, the bad news situation. Yeah. And, and it's certainly not fruitless. I, I think that you can expect that a subset of your audience is, is potentially going to go beyond just being on your side, but they're going to, to want to engage with their time and resources and knowledge. They're going to want to do something. Um, and engaging that group, I think, is is going to be vital for, for any of this, this kind of success. I mean, it, that goes back to even just getting a bunch of different land management agencies on, on the same page about regional conservation efforts. You have to get stakeholder buy-in to have any kind of success. And, and at the basic level, that, that means reaching out to, to everybody at the community level. And our Frog Watch program, um, I have to, I'm really proud of it. Um, our volunteers, we have, we have some of them that have been with us for almost 10 years now. Wow. Um, that have been monitoring the same ponds every night, hearing the same assemblage of species every time. And, and you already heard, I mean, it's, we did the New Orleans Frog Watch with, Z, with Gina and, and heard so many species. But here, um, there, there's a, uh, one of my volunteers out here that's been monitoring at, at one of our montane parks. He's only ever heard boreal chorus frogs every year, and he loves it. And, and, and that's something that I, um, I really enjoy because he, he goes out, he does his monitoring. He's excellent at, at all of his, his data recording. Um, always turns his stuff in on time and can't wait to get out there. And, and I think, you know, from the perspective of a herper, this would get boring very quickly. You know, I, <laughs> I know a lot of people that, that are really great for like a bio blitz because they have these, you know, a lot of uh, skills, the visual encounter survey toolkit where, you know, they, they're awesome at, at finding something in, in a particular area under the right conditions, but you know, they, they don't want to do it every day at the same, same parcel. Um, right. And that's where I think, you know, it's, it's helpful to have different personality types and, and different jump in points for people because um, there's something that, that everyone can do. And I, I think what I, I love about frog watch is that it's rewarded a lot of these folks who who have that kind of dedication because it they they get this deep knowledge of their local aquatic freshwater uh, aquatic community that they're visiting every night on these dark nights and and just even reading their notes that they put in their data sheets or um, it's always a treat you know what whatever they've noticed over time and and patterns they're they're observing but um you know from a you know it's it's beyond just giving them a chance to talk frog watch data is useful. Um, it is the only population monitoring data that we have for amphibians prior to, to me coming on staff um, is the relative abundance data that, that were generated from frog watch monitoring. Um, and beyond just, you know, population levels and, and presence absence, but you also, um, relevant to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation with climate change, you can start looking for changes in phenology. When are the frogs calling? When are they done calling? Are they calling at the same times as they always have, or, or are they changing their calling window? And if yes, then well, why, you know, what, what is the, the driving factor there? Right. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, just talking about, about volunteers, um, there's a heck of a lot of people that have helped me 
um, do as good a job as I can out here. I mean, I, I would not be, the program would not be where it is right now without volunteers, not just through Frog Watch, but um, from folks that have come out to assist with bio blitzes. Um, a lot of co-park members have helped out with that. Some of the, their current steering committee members, um, you know, Hunter Johnson, Sean McMullen, Ryan Borgman, um, Karen Green, um, Tim Borfel, um, and, and so many others have all spent time, their free time, assisting with, with rapid assessment herpetological inventory projects at Jefferson County Open Space. Um, and uh, let, me, let me just interject, too. I think most people are familiar with PARC, which is Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. And then CoPARC is the uh, Colorado chapter mm-hmm. of, that, of that organization. So. Yeah, and, and I I'm no longer on the the Copark steering committee, um, but I, I will remain a, a Copark member, um, and I, I owe a, a tremendous debt of gratitude to that organization for for supporting a lot of these these projects over time. Because you know one of the big challenges of of doing inventories for amphibians and reptiles is that they are very cryptic um, and difficult to detect, and, and especially you know, at, at any given day, um, if you're trying to find multiple species, it, it helps to have folks that that are, are practice observers. Um, and if it's just me, uh, <laughs> that's that's a staff <laughs> member that's out looking. I'm missing a lot of ground, and there's a lot of things I'm not going to see. And the, the more eyes and and boots on the ground we have, it in a lot of cases, the the higher our chances of of detecting um, the species that we're we're hoping to to document. So. I, I still am involved in park with the Southwest uh, Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Chapter, Southwest Park. Um, Co-Park is a state chapter within that regional chapter. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm still still kicking around over there with um, with Joe Ehrenberger and Christina Jones and Clint Henke and, and Jason Jones, you know, all the all the Joneses of Southwest herpetology. You've got to keep um, up with the Joneses. Okay. You, you do. I, I get it. I get it. Well, I, I know I want to say we got off track, but we went off um, it, into the deeper water, if you will. But in terms of conservation, uh, you know, frog conservation and things like that, you, ha- you also have to develop these pictures of what you have and where it lives and what's left. So that future decisions can be made in terms of buying more land, making a, a new park, uh, putting in a trail, uh, putting in a parking lot. All that stuff depends on the data that you collect. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and not just you know these organisms, but any of our, our resource elements of concern, um, be they plants or butterflies, small mammals. Um, or herps. Um, we try to, to be as holistic as we can in these recommendations, but um, certainly that, that is the, the primary reason. We're, we're not just going out and watching frogs and, and waiting to see what happens to them. Uh, the idea is to, to take an active or, or proactive role in either maintaining things a certain way or, or even you know improving habitat through, through restoration work or um, or by enhancing existing habitat, by improving linkages between different land parcels, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I see. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to swivel it a little bit back towards dry land. Uh, so you're also doing some work with uh, the charismatic prairie rattlesnake. 
Yeah. Um, so prairie rattlesnakes are, are, I would say, at least in Jefferson County, they are widespread. They, they have been documented at, at most of our land parcels, and they're a, a, a bit of a habitat generalist. Um, it specializes in, you know, the usual rattlesnake mechanism. They're primarily eating small mammals as adults. Occasionally they're, they're taking birds and, you know, uh, with decreasing frequency, grasshoppers and frogs and salamanders and lizards and things like that. Um, but, uh, they, one of the things that, that I, I like about prairie rattlesnakes from a, a biology standpoint is that they are, um, detectable due to being surface hunters. They spend a relative to our other 11 snake species that occur in Jefferson County. Prairie rattlesnakes spend a, a heck of a lot more time on the ground in areas where they are at least more conspicuous than some of those other animals. And this, this makes them handy when you are trying to map important habitats. So one of the tricky things that you run into when you're doing this kind of inventory work is what do you do with the data and just finding a, a herp in, in one place, you know, what does that mean? If I find a, a, a rattlesnake out in the middle of a field, does that change how I'm going to manage the habitat around the field? Um, not necessarily. Right. But what uh, feature that I, I might document that, that, that would, would be some kind of important, limiting resource for the population, such as um, a rookery or an overwintering den or, or hibernaculum. Uh, and the reason in our area is that, um, you know, as you, as you get up into higher latitudes or higher elevations, um, hibernacula tend to be limiting resources as your, your climate in general is colder. And that leads a lot of our snake species and, and other squamates and things to adopt communal hibernacula because um, they need to find a, a, a winter home that fulfills the requirement of, of not having them freeze to death, but also importantly, not keeping them too warm through the winter where they're wasting their energy reserves. They need to have oh, yeah. enough space to optimally thermoregulate throughout the winter so that they are not freezing, but they are not wasting energy throughout that right. time. And in Colorado and, and specifically within Jefferson County, um, our communal hibernacula tend to have multiple species using them. And some other species that may use share a den with prairie rattlesnakes, you know, racers, plains garter snakes, wandering garter snakes, smooth green snakes, uh, milk snakes are all potential um, roommates of prairie rattlesnakes over the winter that are all a little harder to find uh, around dens with maybe the exception of, of garter snakes that are, are forming breeding aggregations um, in the spring. But, you know, that, that gets into the logistical challenge of I'm spending my springs chasing frogs and generally not looking for hibernacula and while right. the garter snakes aren't breeding and, and big masses in the fall. So, um, I tend to do a lot of our, our hibernacula searches in the fall, but I, I do think of rattlesnakes as, as valuable because they're more detectable at their, their hibernacula than some of the, the rarer or harder to detect snake species. And if I can document where rattlesnakes are hanging out and we keep an eye on those dens, we tend to find other species using them as well. And we do have, um, as far as our, our state wildlife action plan, we also have Western milk snakes 
that are, are listed as a, a species of greatest conservation need. And the elusive red-sided garter snake um, that we have yet to document uh, within Jeffco's land ownership, but we do um, have uh, historic records of red-sided garter snakes within um, Jefferson County, and they they there are extant populations that are very close to several of our land parcels. So um, they are they are a, a snake that we are actively trying to find more records of. The milk snake, I, I would say, most of our records come from citizen science reports, just because they are so darn hard to to find. Um, just on command, they they always seem to be just kind of a lucky break out of out of the blue. So you're uh, you're using uh, iNaturalist and HeartMapper data for that. Kind yes, of thing? absolutely. Yeah. So we any any source that we can, we use. Um, you know, we we go of course to the museum uh, database. We have Colorado Natural Heritage Program data, but then for Sitsai, we do um, we we pull iNaturalist records, we pull HeartMapper records, we um, communicate with other agencies to discuss data or regional experts in, in herpetofaunal distribution in the area. Um, we'll interview folks like that. Um, and we'll use all of that to both paint a historic picture of distribution, but also to give us hints about you know, where should we be targeting our searches during this kind of narrow window um, where we can document these species each year because our, our growing season is relatively short. Um, up at the at this high altitude, right? Well, I'm I'm curious too about well, you know the the rattlesnake human interaction thing varies depending on where you're at, which you you would think it would be kind of uniform across the board, but I don't think so. But uh, what's the what's the attitude of the people who use the parks? Um, are people generally curious or frightened or? What is, what is the general public's reaction uh, when they come across a rattlesnake while recreating in, in some of this par- these parklands? This is a, a rare moment where I feel like I, I have a little bit better idea of how the community feels about this than, than I think a lot of folks might have an opportunity to because we did uh, a couple of years of prairie rattlesnake research at North and South Table Mountains in Golden. Uh, looking at at mostly spatial ecology, but there were some significant public outreach components as well as um, a human dimensions survey that was put together by my manager, uh, Marianne Bennell, where we we looked at people's attitudes toward rattlesnakes and did trailhead surveys. And, and what we found was that generally out here, uh, 90% of the people that we we asked said that rattlesnakes have ecological value and uh, 88% of the people we talked to said that rattlesnakes belonged in open space parks and I, I thought that that number just kind of blew my mind coming again from the from the midwest and and that wasn't because people are are not apprehensive about rattlesnakes um, we, we did find that our um our folks we surveyed were kind of neutral on the idea that, that rattlesnakes, maybe they pose a threat to human safety. Um, people didn't want to say yes, but they, they weren't comfortable saying, well, definitely not. You know, they, they felt more, more uncertain about that one. And a lot of people do still feel like the presence of rattlesnakes in the park does impact their ability to enjoy a nature experience because there, there is some fear. Um, okay. 
yeah. about rattlesnake encounters. So it, it's it's interesting because there's apprehensiveness and, and there's certainly fear of risk and there's certainly a lot of uncertainty about um, what to do when one encounters a rattlesnake or how to remain safe in rattlesnake country. But, right. but there is also this respect for these animals. And, you know, we do, of course, have people that will will kill rattlesnakes um we have regulations against it but you know there there are still people that 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 kill rattlesnakes in our area but it's i don't think quite as as prevalent as as other areas where i've worked okay i ask i this is something i think about a lot more uh, uh you may remember i had dr heather bateman on the show maybe a, a couple months ago and we talked about some survey work they were doing around Phoenix. And uh, that was kind of surprising too. It's similar attitudes from people about rattlesnakes having the right to exist where they, where they exist. And nobody wanted one in their yard, but everybody agreed. They, they're cool where they live out in the desert and they're fine with that. And I, I think that's, to me, that's sort of a refreshing attitude. And the fact that there's a, a big percentage of people who feel that way is, is kind of novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I get people's concerns, especially people who have dogs and children, and then they, you know, they're afraid some random off-trail experience will result in a, you know, a, a bite or something. So I, I get that. Uh, what does the park system do to? I, I don't want to say educate the public, but to make sure that the public has, they have signs, you know, stating, you know, their rattlesnakes are here. You know, what? How does how does the park system approach that? to accommodate both the rattlesnake and, and the, uh, the people that are, that are there to recreate. Yeah, certainly. Um, we, we do quite a bit, um, to try to engage about rattlesnakes just because I, I think they're probably the, the, the species that we get the most questions about, not just within, within herps, but I, I think in general, more so even than, than mountain lions or, or bears or elk or moose. There's just something mystically terrifying about a snake, I guess. Um, but we, uh, as far as things that we've done, um, we have done temporary exhibits on snakes at our nature center facility. We have produced um, educational placards and pamphlets that people have been able to access that have come into our building that that have um, information that pertains to those questions that people aren't certain about that, that survey work that we did, that human dimension survey, one of our, our most important, I think, questions that we had was just, you know, do, how do people, do people know what to do in the event of a, of a snake bite? And unfortunately we found that only 30% of people felt that confident knowing what to do for first aid, um, for, for people who were bit. And so we, we tried to create educational materials that hit at those frequently asked questions. How do I identify a rattlesnake? How do I stay safe in rattlesnake habitat? When are rattlesnakes active? That sort of thing. Um, and then we, we do social media posts. We include rattlesnake information in our newsletters, and we do a lot of media engagement with rattlesnakes. Um, so specifically, my, my manager, again, Mary Ann Bunnell, um, has done a, a lot of um, rattlesnake education through our, our local news channels. Um, so oh, those, so. those programs get over you know, 50,000 50, people tuning into them. So we okay. get quite a bit of, of snake information education out that way. We've done, um, we've done YouTube 
uh, Facebook live events, things like that. Um, our, our YouTube video we did on, on rattlesnake safety and awareness was, I think it's kind of a clunker. It's at 30 minutes, but it's full of great stuff. Um, so for anybody that's looking for the, the skinny on what they need to know, we have a, you know, a little, uh, index card sized plastic laminate that they can clip to their backpack about what they can do. But anybody that wants to know more oh. and wants to move towards self-actualization, they can, they can go all the way through that 30 minute video. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like the idea of this little thing you can carry with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're very popular. And I, if you want to, if you want to link to them or whatever, I can, um, I can send you a link because we, we do have that, that information available online just yeah. so you can kind of see, because they have been something where, I'd say, you know, if you want to look at educational contacts about snakes, if you're doing a one of our land stewardship series talks, for example, where we put out an invitation, you know, whoever wants to register through Eventbrite and the community can come and and we have 90 slots available and I can give you a presentation about snakes for an hour. Um, and that that is one way of doing education. But if you're doing trailhead education, say you're you're wanting to to post post up but with a, a table and a taxidermed rattlesnake and some information and just talk to people who are at the park your contact time the attention span of the person you're talking to might be about two minutes oh. um and in that situation it's really handy to have something where you just hit the basics here's how to know what you're looking at is a rattlesnake. Here's how to stay safe around rattlesnakes. Here's what to do to prevent rattlesnake bites. Here's what to do if a human is bit by a rattlesnake. Here's what to do if a dog is bit by a rattlesnake. And all that's right there on that laminate. You can just hand it to him with a carabiner on it. So, yep, clip it to your backpack. You're good to go. And I love it. People like those. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could have it on a sign and people could take a picture of it. But people don't always think that way. And the idea that, hey, I, I've got it right here with me. That's very thoughtful. I like it. Oh, did I lose you? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. All I right. just, <laughs> I, you know, I'm trying, you know, it's, well, you know, I, I did have some of the input on those, but, you know, Mary, Mary Ann did a lot of that. Okay. Uh, our, our communication staff are excellent. And they're the ones that actually did the graphic design to, to make them pretty and readable. So very good. I can't, I can't exactly take sole credit, but I, I think as an agency, we're, we're pretty happy with them and, and the fact that they, they are able to, to answer the mostly, you know, the frequently asked questions. Very good. Uh, we've been talking for quite a while here and I appreciate you kind of give me some insight and, and a listener, some insight into what you do and how things go in, in Jefferson County and the efforts. It sounds like there's a, a great deal of commitment uh, among the people involved and uh, things are moving forward. So I, I like the sound of that, but I, I also want to take just a few minutes to talk about, our great love of amphibians and reptiles in general. And uh, you and I have been to some interesting places together, had some adventures in various places. And uh, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about that, unless you have more to say about prairie rattlesnakes. No, that's all right. I'm 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 happy to talk about whatever. If you want to want <laughs> updates about any of those various projects, you can have me back on. Okay. Okay, cool. So we, we've Gone harping in some really cool places like uh, Ecuador, and uh, you've been to Peru and things like that. And uh, is there any anything that sticks out in your mind as a favorite place or a favorite experience? Um, that is that's difficult in in part because each one of them represents such an investment of of time. 
Um, and such a, I almost feel like you are, are, it's like life concentrated when you're on a, one of those wildlife expeditions, because, um, we're going constantly, we're constantly going somewhere or looking for something we're interfacing with other people all the time. There's very little, you know, isolation with yourself. You're, you're around other people who are blessed, you know, blessedly just as excited as you are about what you're out looking for. And I think because of that, they're each of these, you know, adventures, I guess, have, have been something of, um, uh, each one is, is a unique experience and in, in the value that it's brought, not just because of the, the places we were in or the, um, the animals that we observed or the, the behaviors we got to, to document or, or witness or enjoy. But beyond that, uh, I think it is, it has been such a, a unique way to meet and befriend people. Um, I, yeah. I think it, it is funny to think that some of the people that, that I've met in the last half decade or so that I would consider very dear friends, um, that I've only actually been in the same physical space as them a handful of times. Yeah. Um, and trying to explain that to, to someone who doesn't do this, this thing doesn't, doesn't go globe trotting with a bunch of, you know, pseudo strangers from the internet to go looking for, uh, rare amphibians and reptiles, um, and, and exotic locales to, to us, at least if you're a, a Midwesterner, just about anywhere, uh, with native vegetation is, is, uh, exotic to me. This, uh, you know, I, I said this, I think it was, uh, a few years ago, I said this to Eric McCormick, uh, our, our buddy, Eric. And I said, Eric, I, I never, you've never been to my house. I've never been to your house. I only see you in you know, I show up and you're there at some place uh, and you show up and I'm here at, at some other place. And that's the only time I see you. And I see you for the short bursts uh, and that's it. You know, we don't, I don't come over to your house and hang out. So it's a different, these are different kinds of friendships, aren't they? They are, but it's, it's one of those things where I, I liken it to, you know, meeting friends as an adult, say at work, you know, as it with coworkers or things like that, where it's kind of a slow acquaintance. You see them with some frequency, um, but it, you know, you feel like it takes time to get to know each other. And I feel like on, on these herping trips, um, what I've found is there's often in these remote areas where we're going, there's, there's very little alternative entertainment. We, you are either herping by walking together or you are herping by driving together. And when, especially road cruising, when you're spending, you know, hours on a particular three mile stretch of road through your favorite habitat and maybe finding one animal per hour and say 50% of the animals you're finding are dead. It gives you this unique opportunity to have nothing to do, but talk to each other. <laughs> um, and get to know each other. And, and I, I find I, I've really enjoyed that because in spite of, you know, as you put it, you know, only maybe a handful of times, you know, each time is, you know, 10 days of basically constant contact. Yeah. And I think it, it forces you to, to get to know people. And it, it, I think encourages, I think, that that sort of common ground that everyone has that shared passion for for the wildlife that you're observing that opens a door 
there, there's a safety in it. You know, everybody here likes what I like. Everybody here thinks that, that what I think is interesting is interesting. And because of that, with that common ground, you already feel like you're, you're in a community, um, where you can feel relaxed. You can, you can open up a little bit. You can, you can share a little bit about yourself. And I, th- I think that's one of my favorite things about these things is and as corny as that might sound is, um, just the, the sheer number of amazing people that I've been able to, to meet through them. Um, and I, I would say I remember the friends I've made and the things I've, I've learned about them or done with them just as, as fondly as a particularly, uh, excellent snake or frog. Okay. Well, I like your perspective. Uh, and, and I have to agree. Um, you make a, you make some good friends and you, uh, you get to know them and they get to know you and, uh, you're all in the same channel and other people look at that, at what you're doing and they, you know, it looks weird, looks strange, but, uh, when you're in it with your friends, it's it's just normal. It's just it's just regular life. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I think everyone probably has a you know who's who's into amphibians and reptiles as a as an enthusiast probably has a a story about you know having to wandering off on your own at a maybe inopportune time to go herping, um, and I've I've certainly been caught in in a tux while in someone's wedding party (laughs) flipping locks in chicago looking for for blue spotted salamanders um when i i i hurt mappered a toad at my daughter's wedding reception well and you know to 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 the people who know you well that's that's kind of what they're going to expect but it doesn't mean that they're going (laughs) to enjoy going on a hike with you um Uh, i have i have some very dear friends who hate hiking with me uh because it's a lot of and we walk very slowly for a little bit and then we stop and we stop for a long time when what are we looking at we're looking at a snake what's it doing not much why are we still watching it well what is it gonna do what's it gonna do next and it's it's not the same for everybody and that and that's okay right. it's good to have yeah. balance in your life it's good to to have other dimensions but it, it is nice to to not have your your sort of all-consuming passion be kind of a an odd, you know, mostly lovable, but sometimes irritating quirk. It's nice to be <laughs> able to completely drop that for these people are all just as insane as I am. And yeah. they want to spend as little time sleeping, as little time in their hotel room, as little time watching TV and as much time as possible sweating and being bit by bugs and the hope to see one more species or one more interesting behavior or just one more with, with a, a different coloration or, you know, I, I think that there's, there's some value in, in getting to, to be with your, your people like that. Yeah. Your people. That reminds me of something else too. I mean, you're talking about long, slow walks, um, which kind of sounds like, uh, you know, a dating app advertisement. Uh <laughs> But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist. I just got to play at it. But it's hard for me to walk away from the experiences in the field without thinking about certain aspects of the things I've seen or the animals I've encountered. And I think about them over and over and I think about them deeply. And I think about, you know, the, the ecosystems we were in and all of these things just could go on and on and on after the fact. And so I have to assume it's kind of the same for you, especially given your your training and your your, your vocation, that you, you know the questions uh, just 
kind of, you know, there's just so many questions and so many things that you think about from these trips uh, that uh, come from your experiences, you know, for what you do for a living. I think um, Brian Hughes and I have, have talked about this particular phenomenon and uh, he, I think pretty aptly called it scrimmage is what we do. Um, we, I think every time that we have been on one of these trips together, we have, you know, latched onto some question or idea and some dialogue and we more or less invent a, a PhD dissertation plan on, on how to answer <laughs> all of these questions and, you know, what, what techniques would you use and how would you do the logistics, et cetera. And, and the funny thing, uh, you know, I, th- I think it started half sincere you know, there, there, there always is this, that's where it comes from. We want to talk about it. We want to think about it. But I think in the end, we both, you know, come around to the idea that while I, I have my, my home where I am working on this and here I am a visitor, I am, I'm a tourist. And while that doesn't mean I, I, I can't make a contribution, it does limit the kind of contribution I can make. And so I, I, I think as time has gone on, I've tried to almost turn off certain parts of my my brain or at least the the anxiety i feel or the the need to produce something the need to make it count in in the the biggest possible way and instead to to just say i'm here to just be someone who's just here to enjoy nature because i i do think about these kind of things quite a bit and i know you know how much work goes into it and i know that you know, there are some things that I'm, I'm not going to be able to get to. And, and at the same time, while seeing these things in, a, in an environment and scrimmaging with these, these passionate uh, uh, people of, of all kinds of backgrounds and experiences, through that, I, I do find I, I get a lot of good ideas. Um, and through that, that scrimmage, I, I find that I'm re-energizing my passion so that when I do return to, to, to Jefferson County or to Colorado, um, I, I get to bring that enthusiasm with me and that changed perspective. So that even though my situation at, at home, the, the fauna, the landscape I'm working in is, is still largely the same. I'm different. And the way I see it is different, even if it's a little bit. Yeah. I think that experience has been very valuable. Yeah. I appreciate your perspective on that. I mean, sometimes it's good just to uh, enjoy the moment, but I, I just, Personally, I just can't help thinking about things at a deeper level, usually things I don't understand very well, um, behaviors of an animal or why they occur here and not there and that kind of thing. But uh, but then I just realize that, I, well, I am kind of having fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, the unanswerable questions are kind of fun. And, uh, you know, it kind of means that, you know, wherever we're at, like if we're in Ecuador or, or Mexico, more likely, but if wherever we're at, uh, uh, I'm running into things that are perplexing and I, I kind of like that. Absolutely. I'm easily perplexed, I guess. So. Well, I think it, it does help, you know, going, going somewhere outside of your experience can be humbling in a good way. Um, it can remind you how much there is to know. And even oh if gosh. you you are someone who has who has had certain adjectives thrown at you, like regional expert in herpetology, um, you 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 go into an environment that's not your 
not your ballpark and suddenly you know you're completely back to, to square one i mean you might have some some appreciation of patterns and and ideas of, of what to look for but i there's just so much to know out there and it, yeah. it does give me ideas like man I'd, I'd really like to come come back to this and I'd, I'd really like to understand this more and and i think there's always these little miniature dreams i explore of well i'll, I'll just move to Ecuador. Or I'll move to Veracruz and I'll dedicate my life to this long-tailed salamander that I fell in love with and I'll, I'll learn more about them. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it just comes back to not wanting to burn myself out. There was a, a period, and I, I think this is something that discussing it with, with folks who, who both find their, you know, this is, this is where I pay my bills as well as, as how I relax is yeah. uh, you know I amphibians and reptiles and while that might sound great like anything else when you spend a lot of time in a, a particular area there is a risk of burnout and I do feel sure. like I I was firing on all cylinders for for a long time and this feeling especially you know when you're an early career biologist I'm I'm 30 now so I'm I'm not as young as I was when we met but but still relatively early in my career um, and I've only recently found, you know, a, a full-time permanent position. Uh, most of the time I've, I've been working seasonally and, and I think there was this, always this hunger for experience. Any, right. anywhere I went or any work I could do, anytime I could tag along and learn something from someone that was, that was maybe an advantage I could use, um, right. in the hopes of, of securing that, that job that would let the rest of my life kind of, order itself. I could get health insurance or a place to live um, that, that was stable where I wasn't having to worry about what I was going to do for work all the time. And right. I think that amount of constant, you know, I'm, I'm working for 10 hours and then I leave work, get in my car, drive 45 minutes, and I'm in a different environment looking for herps until midnight. And then I drive home and I, I go to sleep for four hours and then I wake up and go back to work at I, I found that 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 was not sustainable no. over the long term. I was glad that I did it. I, I did gain so many so many experiences, and I, I had so many interesting thoughts. But I I find now that I, I'm almost enjoying the ability to to just enjoy nature when I'm when I'm traveling or or on a weekend. I can instead of you know the constant motion. You know, if I'm at work, right. I, I usually don't bring a camera with me. You know, I, I see a, a herp and I, I record it on a data sheet and I keep moving because if I'm just doing a presence absence project, the more time I spend observing that animal that's missed detections during this window in the same wow. area, I have to keep going. And I, I think what I like about those trips um, and my own time on the weekends is the way I engage with it is different. It's maybe not so much that I'm not thinking deeply about it. it's it's even more i think maybe it is more that i i'm just taking time to appreciate one individual experience and really savor it instead of running to the next thing i i just you know i want to see heck here's a horn lizard what's yeah. it gonna do and, and maybe just watch it for a while and maybe maybe just take pictures of it for an hour <laughs> and not yeah. do or see anything else. And I, and I enjoyed that. I mean, even on that, the, the last visit we, we had gone to Veracruz earlier this year. And I mean, the, the species list, um, 
that we had generated. I mean, the, the number of animals that we were able to detect while we were there was, was, um, well, incredible. And when we were, you know, photo docking all of these finds at the end of the trip, I, I found that I had not photographed, um, a number of the species before we left, um, cause I had spent time on other things. And I think it was the first time on one of these trips that I did not feel some kind of, of regret or remorse for that. I, I left thinking I, I enjoyed the time I spent looking right. at and observing what I did. And it's okay that I miss some things because I'll never see it all. I'll never. Yeah. You can't be in two places at the same time. You can't. And, yeah. and instead I've, I'm, I'm trying to learn to enjoy more of just what, what is interesting me? What is what I'm excited about? And, and how can I, how can I keep nurturing that? And I, I don't know. I, I like the, the direction I'm headed with it. Is there a place you'd like to go? Is something on your list that gets you excited to think about? Well, there's a heck of a lot of really cool lizards that live on Madagascar. That would be interesting. I do feel like I, I barely scratched the surface of Southeast Asia, and there's a heck of a lot of really cool stuff out there. I'm trying to think of, I mean, the <laughs> I'm also excited about about just things here locally, though. Hmm. I think I think maybe the the most pressing thing at the front of my mind is just that I'm so darn close to seeing all of the U.S. rattlesnakes uh, at the species level that I, I'd just like to finish that. How many do you have left? Um, I still need to see an eastern diamondback. I still need to see a pygmy. I still need to see a panamint. And, a, and I still need to see an eastern massasauga. Okay. Um, but that's it. Yeah. Um, which is just a tant- tantalizingly close. Yeah, you might um, as well finish it off. Well, and, you know, once you do that, it's, well, what's next? And I find a lot of the time, once I've, I've quote, finished a, uh, <laughs> a particular genera or whatever, you know, whatever genera I've, I've seen a, a representative of each species. Uh, I just start to wonder, well, but you know, I only saw one snapshot. What else is there? What, what, you know, pattern variation, what color variation, what behaviors uh-huh. am I missing? You yeah. know, I've never seen rattlesnake combat, even though I've spent quite a bit of time working on rattlesnakes. I, yeah. to much to my chagrin, I've never seen rattlesnakes in combat. I've never encountered rattlesnakes mating. I've seen courtship, but but I haven't actually witnessed copulation. Um, I just this year checked off leopard frogs calling off my to-do oh. list. Not because I hadn't cool. heard them. I've heard them many times. But to get a photograph of a male with his vocal pouches inflated was something I had never done. Uh, um, now you're talking my one of my favorite things to do. I enjoy yeah. the heck out of that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just setting those small goals and, and more than anything, I guess, as far as like place to go, I, and again, I, I, at the risk of, of being corny again, I just want to go where my friends are, you know, <laughs> okay, where's, yeah. where's every, where's the yeah. next spot? Where's, where, where are my buddies going to be? I want to be okay. there with them experiencing that. Um, yeah. that would be my, my favorite place to be. Very good. And I like how you finished with a flourish of natural history observation that was nice because um, i kind of agree with you the idea of seeing these things behave this way you know uh, mating combat vocal sacs and things like that that those are all cool things 
to see and just uh, good goals to have, I think. Mm-hmm. I have two rattlesnakes left in the United States, so I'm right there with you. And and I'm kind of a, it, at the point where it's like, well, I, 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 I need to finish this out just because I, I like it's like, uh, you know, le- leaving one bite of the sandwich on the plate. I don't like that. So. Absolutely. Well, especially if you've got all the hard ones, <laughs> it's, uh, well, yeah. you know, those, those yeah. are all doable, uh, more yeah. or less. I mean, I, with the exception of the, the Massasauga, but you know, the other ones are all detectable in the right areas. It's like, well, and I, and I haven't spent a lot of time there. I mean, I, I guess that's, that is also a shining star for me is before I consider returning to a place I've been before, I, I just kind of look at, where have I not gone where there's this, you know, extremely high percentage of things that I've never encountered and I've never seen. And I always get excited about things like that because rather than, than setting out with a particular target or goal in mind, I, I just get to go and say, well, let's just see what's here. Um, yeah. And, and what, what even being in this habitat feels like and what, what patterns I can observe just by, by spending 10 days in this environment, what, what will I learn? And, uh, and, you know, if I ever do come back around at at that point, you know, it'll, it'll be after I've seen a bunch of things in a bunch of different places. So it's, it's always, it's always tempting. You know, I feel like I, everywhere I go, the most recent place I've been is my favorite, um, because it's the most (laughs) vivid, you know, that that I'm remembering it and I'm, I'm processing those pictures and stuff. And, uh, but then, you know, the, the, the problem comes like, oh, well, are are you just going to go back there next year? Well, you know, there's a, on the other side of that mountain range is an entirely different eco region with a totally different species assemblage. And that sounds more exciting. And I, I think that's okay. I think it's okay to, to just be a naturalist sometimes, um, and to, to, to just, to just go look around and, and experience something with an open mind and, and not so much to, to very strictly try to knock out every species on your life list. I, I, quit keeping a life list. I, I rattled the rattlesnakes off the top of my head because um, I'm very fond of rattlesnakes. Um, so I, I just have a particular uh, enjoyment of them. But I, I stopped um, maintaining a life list in 2018. Um, I think I, I'm just as excited to see a, a new species as I am to see a new behavior for me of a, of a species I've already seen. Um, I see. Yeah. I, I, I think... Um... For me, it's it's. I still keep a life list. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm a list. Don't keeper. be sorry. I, it, my, uh, what's working for me doesn't mean that anybody else yeah. has to be different. I just have, that's my, that's my truth. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know the, the the big the big meme for us life listers is nobody wants to hear about your life list, uh, and, and it's kind of true. But uh, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. But I I I, I find myself oscillating, but between going to familiar places because I, I like the places and I like the things I see there. And then going between that and novel places I've never been to before and things I've never seen before. I, I seem to like both of those things. And, uh, I try, to do, both. Yeah, I try to do both of both. those, you know, I, cause on the one hand, you know, I think you're, you know, coming back to that, that contribution to conservation piece, um, there's more you can do by by focusing on an area or on a taxa or in a particular environment um, just because you get to know it in a, in a depth that you couldn't if you were constantly moving around. And yet remaining in the same environment over and over, you know, you, you may 
wind up stagnating either because you're not out of fresh ideas or maybe your um, networking is not, is not happening as much, or maybe your passion is waning. You're getting burned out. And I, I think that's where seeing something new can, can be really valuable um, because it, it can be invigorating. I mean, I, I, every time I go somewhere new and go herping, you know, I, I, there are people who think I'm insane. Cause I, you know, I just come off of doing that all week and then I get on a plane and I go do it somewhere else, but it's, <laughs> it's invigorating. It's, it's, the way I process it is different. Um, yeah. and they're both valuable experiences. And I, I think I would not want to give up either. They, they complement each other. So I don't yes. think there's anything wrong with that at all. Well, uh, you and I are in the same of the same opinion, I think. So I want to thank you for coming on the show. And, and not only uh, I, I appreciate the uh, giving us an overview of what you do. And I, I've talked to you about your, your job before and things that are going on there, but it's, it's good to uh, sort of get it all together in one place and uh, uh, not talk to you over the, you know, from front seat to back and that kind of thing. Cause that's, sure. you know, car conversations and all that. But, uh, so it's kind of good just to sit down and talk to you in a continuous stream for almost two hours. So I appreciate that. And, uh, I, uh, I always good to talk to people who are doing work to keep common species common and, uh, you know, protecting herbs and helping to helping the, the general public to, you know, have, have a better understanding of not just the animals, but uh, viewing those animals as a precious resource for them to enjoy. So it's good to talk to you about, you know, those kind of things. So I always appreciate our conversations, Mike. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed talking with you. I, I will, as time has gone on and our, our inventory has continued to progress, we thankfully have, have got to a point where we can start asking some, some more specific and, and deeper questions. Um, so I've just started my first, as of this year, our first systematic artificial cover survey. Um, and Ooh, that's exciting. Of, in hopes of detecting some elusive colubrids. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to, to present some of that work kind of this fall and, and hopefully you'll, you'll see some things coming out uh, more about some of that. And yeah, um, keep an eye on, on some of this, multi-agency leopard frog work we're doing, um, collaboration that my agency is doing with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, um, Adaptation Environmental Services, and the, the Denver Botanic Gardens is is pretty exciting right now. We're mapping oh, cool. the breeding habitat of, of northern leopard frogs and the Deer Creek drainage and building kind of a, I guess, a, a, a map of that population's seasonal habitat use and movement corridors um, that we can all use to try to either reduce barriers to the movements of the animals or enhance the, the value of certain habitats for them. So um, there's a lot going on and I'm excited about all of it. So might be able to, Excellent. to follow well, up sometime when you're, you're doing round two through all these interviews. <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, love, love talking to you. And uh, what, like I said, whether it's over this, this in the car or uh, uh, a campfire or just uh over the internet, it's always fun, and I appreciate your perspective, and uh, you're, you're a good talker, good conversationalist, and I uh, appreciate that. So I'll, I'll put good talker on my LinkedIn as soon as we close out this conversation. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks for that, Mike. Likes long, slow walks and good talking. 
<laughs> well, thanks. Thanks so much for giving me the chance to, to talk with you. And um, yeah, hope to hope to be on here again someday. All right. Take care. You too. That's it for episode 47. I want to thank Andrew Dubois for coming back on the show and for talking with me. And uh, I'm already looking forward to our next conversation. And folks, you can see the show notes for more information on what Andrew is up to there in Jefferson County. And uh, thanks once again to all of my patrons for supporting the show. Uh, I'm grateful for your support and the show could not continue without you. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo. Uh, just drop me an email at so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herpsters. And, uh, uh, feedback is good, and you can reach me directly via email at so much pingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>